Greetings to you all in the name of the Lord Jesus, the first day of 2023. I don't know, I don't see too many sleepy faces out there. Hopefully most of you had enough sense to go to bed in a normal time. <laughs> but... um. It's not a sin to stay up to midnight. I think it's sort of foolish, but uh, <laughs> some enjoy to seem seem to enjoy to do that. So I'll I'll give them their Christian liberty. <laughs> but anyhow, it's a new year, and I don't have a particularly. Uh, a New Year's message, although initially I had this titled, Husbands, It is a New Year, in the sense of where um, what was mentioned this morning already by um, song leader, what's his name, Kainrich, <laughs> get a mental block, about uh, making goals and so on. Um, but I, I was I was thinking a lot, doing a little bit of. Uh, I'm going to give you the what goes on through the mind of a preacher when he's getting ready to preach, and some of the insecurities that he has. You know, um, the last message that I had was towards the, the women, the ladies, and um, some of the feedback I got was that it was graciously given. It wasn't scolding. It was uh, direct, instructional, and yet at least significantly encouraging. And then I prepare a message for the husbands, and at the, after I'm all done, I'm thinking, well, now, is the same spirit going to come out of this message? <laughs> is this going to be an encouraging message, or is this going to be a scolding message? In, you know, it, just a tone of it. And um, and I knew I had read an article a few years ago, and I looked it up and I found it. And the title of it was, Why Do Churches Correct Men and Cuddle Women? And it had a, and that, that, that might be a message sometime. <laughs> but um, I'm wondering, well, am I going to fall into that trap? Um, being gracious, and then here we come to the men, and hey, time to shape up. Uh, men, it's a new year. And, and yeah, those are some of the, if you look at, uh, you are just giving you a, a little bit of an, a window into my own thoughts as I get up to prepare and have a message and, uh, and so on. So uh, those are some of my insecurities coming out, probably. The next thing is, I just have way too much material to be done in time, so I'm not sure what I'm going to do yet, but I don't want to run over time. So, but first of all, we have not had prayer this morning. Can you please stand up? Let's have a word of prayer. <clears throat> Lord, thank you. Thank you, Lord, for seeing us through another year. Thank you, Lord, that we can stand here 
Today we are alive and we are under the sound of the gospel. Today, Lord, is a new day. Today is a day of opportunity, Lord. Today, Lord, is a day, Lord, that we can serve you. And, of course, we had the example already brought this morning of how two men, four men, how two have chosen one way and two chosen another. And those choices lie even in our uh, grasp today, Lord. So, Lord, I pray you be with us in the coming year. Be with also with us this morning as we look into your word. If you look into your word and learn instruction from your wisdom, your direction, your counsel, and your commandments. Thank you, Lord, for being our God. We pray in Jesus' name. Amen. Sit down, and you can turn to First um, Peter three seven. You know the last two messages were focused mostly on women, and um, the first one was the complementarian model versus the egalitarian model. Egalitarian model, which is is basically giving the role that God has given to men and women. And then the last message was especially for women in the area of modesty and simplicity in dress. In both of those messages, I brushed some of the responsibility of men in both of those messages. But we just brushed them. But that is changing this morning and I don't know if you wives have been waiting for this one. And I'm going to say uh, it's it's because it's for husbands. I'm going to tell you young men who are not married, this is a dry run for you. This is a, uh, this is something you can, uh, pract- it's a practice run. You can uh, evaluate your character according to what you should be as a husband. Now, the roles of husbands and wives have largely been lost in our culture. Some even hate the idea of the traditional roles. They, they, they disdain them. And I remember um, seeing uh, a number of advertisements that someone just brought a number of advertisements together that happened in history, basically in the 60s, the 50s, the 40s, the 30s, and on back, uh, of advertisements that were geared at least partially towards women. It was advertisements like appliances and cookware and maybe other home interior things, yes, uh, appliances like the, the stove or the sweeper and that kind of thing. And the advertisements assumed that the woman takes care of the house. And the point of this whole thing that they were doing is to describe that those advertisements wouldn't work today. They would be thrown out, that kind of sexism. And there was also a woman, I think she was in maybe in Congress or some kind of government, where she was trying to facilitate some kind of policy changes, where she was saying that the breadwinner 
the um, the caregiver and the breadwinner home model simply doesn't exist anymore. In our culture, that is no longer normal. <clears throat> so concerning the wife's role, uh, people still have a faint memory of it. Many don't like it. But what is the husband's role? For the most part, that's forgotten. You won't find it in the Berenstein books. You're familiar with those books? I don't know if I pr- pronounced it correctly or not. You won't find a role model of a husband in there. You won't find it in the schools. You won't find it in the, any popular cultural expression. You will not find it. You will find it in old literature. Uh, just take the little house in the big woods, the little house in the prairie, Laura Ingalls books. In there, you do have this model. Now, it's an imperfect one. It's a civic Christian model. But you do have a wife who takes care of the house, and you have a father who does the husband things. So, but today, when young men take their traditional role of men in our culture, when they seek to excel in their work, when they want to guide and protect the women in their lives, they are accused of this phrase, toxic masculinity, which is a phrase out there. And extended adolescence is a serious problem in our culture. Men, boys, young men no longer grow up in the same um, uh, state of rate as they used to in history. And there's many reasons for that. One thing is in general culture we're talking about, uh, women are generally much more capable of taking care of themselves. They're more educated. They have, they can earn money. They can get careers. And then you have the, the feminist movement and the liberation of woman and her place in education. And it has usurped the man's place and has made the man dispensable. He's no longer essential. He's no longer necessary. And so many men have not found the need to grow up. And one of those things that cultural phenomenons of thousands and thousands of young men who still live in their parents' house at 30 years old. Doing what? Playing video games. (laughs) That's right. Or worse. So, that is a general culture. Now, I am persuaded, and I know it's that way. It is, I'm persuaded of better things of that of you, and it is that way. Just taking the context of the world we live in. We are strangers and pilgrims in this world. We are. Now, when it comes to uh, husbands, we don't actually have a Proverbs 31 equivalent for husbands. 
Where will you find a husband's role? Well, we'll find it some here in Peter. I don't know if you're there by now or not. But in Peter verse 1, chapter, uh, 1 Peter chapter 3 verse 7, this is the verse we're going to focus on. Likewise, ye husbands, dwell with them, such as your wives, according to knowledge, giving honor unto the wife as unto the weaker vessel, and as being heirs together of the grace of life, that your prayers be not hindered. Now, what does that verse start with? It starts with the word likewise. I spent quite a few hours to understand what that likewise word was there for. As you notice in verse 1 of chapter 3, it is also there. Likewise. Likewise, you wives. Likewise, you husband. And my first thought had been when I seen it likewise, uh, when I, when I preached it on wise, I said, this actually means submission. We're in a, we're in a passage of submission. Uh, with government officials, you submit. With masters and slaves, if you are a servant, you submit. And now wives, you submit to your husbands. Now we come to husbands. And it says likewise. Now here we have a problem, a dilemma. My theory is not holding out. And I said it last time in the last message that it means likewise, uh, submission. So I found an article that said, oh, yes, yes. Uh, likewise means that husbands submit to wives, wives submit to husbands. It was an egalitarian model that there is no one above another. It's just likewise. Fifty-fifth submission is what is taught here. So I looked the scriptures over. I looked at a lot of commentaries. Uh, most of them didn't address this word at all. It was just ignored as it wasn't there. Finally, in one commentary, I found the answer. And the answer is I'm ashamed to say I should have seen it myself. Without a commentary, I should have seen it. If you do Bible study, you actually should be able to know that, but I didn't. Does anybody want to venture a guess what that likewise is there for? You may be wrong. It's okay. And if you don't have an answer, uh, that's fine. It's in plain sight. No, no, not that big. That's the one. That's actually the one. Thank you, brother. You should have corrected me last time I preached. <laughs> that is actually what it is. Likewise, first shows up in verse 1 of chapter 3, and it refers to the example of Christ starting there in verse 21. Just as Jesus was submissive and obedient to God's will, even in suffering, so a Christian wife and a Christian husband should follow his example. So I'm going to go over this a little bit very briefly. 
The, con- um, the context is a difficult relationship. Starting first with masters and slaves, and then the likewise goes to a Christian wife with an unsaved husband. And now a husband. And what did Jesus do? What role model did he leave for us to follow? Well, let's start at verse 20, actually. What glory is it if ye be buffeted for your faults? Ye shall take it patiently. But if ye do well and suffer for it, ye take it patiently. This is acceptable with God. That's the context, where context is this kind of suffering or difficult thing. And then reading on here, for even... Here unto were you called, because Christ also suffered for us, leaving us an example that you should follow his steps. Who did no sin, neither was guile found in his mouth. Now Christ suffered, but he didn't suffer because he was sinful, or that he was stupid, or because he was a slacker, or rude. He wasn't insensitive, or selfish, or deceitful. He wasn't that. And husbands, in your first part, in following the example of Christ, is that you don't sin in your relationship. That's a goal. Christ did not sin. Now, we won't be like that perfectly, but that is a goal. He was honest and upfront. And caring. And so likewise, ye husbands, me husband. Who, Christ, when he was reviled, reviled not again. So when words are wrongly used in the home towards you. If that happens, sharp words, unkind words, demeaning words. It shouldn't happen, but if it does, follow the example of Christ. When you are reviled, don't return reviling again. And on here, when he suffered, he threatened not. When you wrongfully suffer, when you unjustly suffer, unkindly, when you're nastily treated, don't respond in kind. When he suffered, he threatened not. Don't threaten. I know of enough of bad marriages from my experience there at work and my contact with people. I know enough about marriages that threatening is a common experience in marriages. One of my coworkers did not like what his wife, the decisions he was making. And he said, if you do that, I'll leave. And she persisted, and he packed up his clothing and left. That was more than a threat, right? (laughs) But it was a threat. And another one, it's just threat, threat, and threat. If you do that, you know, and, and on we go. Christ did not threaten. Instead of threatening or reacting, or giving it back, 
Christ committed himself to him that judges righteously, who his own self bear our sins on his own body in the tree, that we being dead to sin should live unto righteousness by whose stripes we are healed. This is actually the... Um, when we talk to the wives about how they should treat an unbelieving husband, you know, how um, that they may without the word be one. <laughs> this is actually the husband's on the, the other side because likewise in the same way. It's actually non-resistance in marriage. It's actually suffering love in marriage. Um, now, this, this, the, the scope of the message is, is, is way, way, way too narrow to actually go through what you should do when you're in a difficult situation and all that. I'm just bringing only one side out. But here is, here is a statement that I came across some month ago that I want to be riveted in my mind. And if you write things down, uh, you can, he said, uh, the, there in, um, in the end of Romans 12, when he talked about non-resistance, Paul talked about non-resistance in Romans 12. At the end, he says, do not be overcome of evil, but overcome evil with good. Now, here's the point. When someone else's sin either causes me or gives me an excuse to sin, I have been overcome of evil. Get that. If someone else's sin causes me to sin, I have been overcome of evil. And Paul is saying, do not be overcome of evil. Overcome evil, let's come toward you with good. <clears throat> that is a Christian principle that goes throughout from A to Z. And I think that is part of the, the sanctification process that God takes us through that we don't learn perfectly the first day or the hundredth. Okay, I'm just going to figure out what's in the cutout and what not. Um, so that, anyhow, is the word, likewise, that refers to husbands, and wives. It's not about submission. It's about following Jesus' example explicitly, completely, in faith that God will intervene in his time. Faith, trusting, and obedient. And that's what the first word means. And that's why I go so slowly through a book study going 15 minutes on the first word. But don't miss this one, please, what this likewise is for. Don't miss it. Likewise is an important word. <clears throat> it doesn't mean that husbands and wives are just a doormat and just passively accept all the wrong that comes from their spouse. It just means that our responses that occur with this context I have that sentence completely wrong. <laughs> Nothing makes sense to me. But basically, it's 
there's a whole other message of what do you do in a bad situation. I'm not going to touch that. But what do you not do in a bad situation is really what I was focusing on this morning. Um, okay. I'd like to talk a little bit about love that is actually not in First Peter. It says, live, dwell with your wife according to knowledge and understanding way. But I want to get a few words out of Ephesians 5, and you don't have to turn there. But I want you to know this. In Ephesians 5, when Paul gives the instruction to a husband about marriage, who does he lift up as the example again? <laughs> it's the Lord Jesus Christ. You cannot, we will not ever get away from it. The Lord Jesus Christ is our example. And in the summary verse in Ephesians chapter 5 is the last one. Nevertheless, let every one of you in particular so love his wife, even as himself. And then say, and the wife see that she reverence her husband. So, a husband should love his wife even as himself. And then, how does a man love himself? Well, if you back up a few verses in Ephesians 5, in 28 and 29, so ought men to love their wives as their own bodies. Love your, own, love your wives as yourself. He that loveth his wife loveth himself. For no man ever yet hateth his own flesh, but nourisheth and cherisheth it even at the Lord the church. So I'd like to look at a few of those terms. And the first one is love. And then later, if I have time, we'll look at nourish and cherish. Now, the wife is told very clearly to look to her husband as the leader in the home. The husband is, to my knowledge, is never told to be the leader. You think there's a reason for that? Maybe you actually know of a time, but she is not to lead. She is to allow him to lead. But when we get to the husband... It doesn't tell him to lead. It's not about leadership. What is it about? It's about love. And I think the reason is that we don't have a, have a hard time telling people what to do. We just get a hint that we're in charge and we're off to the races. So we don't need to be told to be in charge. That's come more naturally. But how we lead is the focus. We have a much harder time walking in love. <clears throat> the moment my wife is out of order or offends me in some way, then, and right then, when my wife does something I don't like, right then, right at that moment, I don't need to be reminded that I'm in charge. Did you know that? At that moment, I need to know that I am to walk in love. And you can apply that to children. You can apply that to everywhere. And I'm learning still. 
My chief responsibility as a husband is to love my wife. And love is a command. In fact, love is the command. Love is not a feeling. How often do we need to hear that? You, you used to go, some of you went to school. As a punishment sometimes, we had to write 200 times this sentence. I will not be so, so, so in school. I wonder how many times we should write this sentence. Love is not a feeling. Now, I'll clarify that a little bit. Love is not a feeling. Love is not a feeling. Love is not a feeling. Write it 500 times on the board. Love is not a feeling. It's not something that comes over you. It's not something you fall into. Because that is not love. Now, love has feelings. That's a balanced understanding. The emotions of love are like icing on a cake. <clears throat> they're wonderful. They're exciting. But they're not dependable, those feelings. And they won't take us through the long haul. Because you can have the same feelings of love for someone else who is not your spouse. Is that loving? No, that's horrible. But those feelings that you call love can exist in that environment. Now, here's another statement that you might want to remember. Feelings do not make a relationship legitimate. Talking about having feelings for someone. Feelings do not make a relationship legitimate. And the lack of those feelings do not make a relationship illegitimate. Because the feelings are not the issue. If someone says we fell out of love, you need to remember that God never told you to fall into love. He commanded you to walk in love, in real life action. That means love is actually primarily a verb and not a feeling. You can command someone, stand up. Zayden, stand up. Oh. <laughs> You can command someone to stand up and he stands up. You can command someone to sit down and he sits down. And you can command someone to love and he said, I can't do that. What do you mean? You can't, no, you can't command someone to love. I actually said that already. You can't command someone to love. A, a, a dictator can force people to obey him. But he can't force the people to love him. That's, that was that makes sense, right? But if love is not a feeling, you can actually command someone to love. In fact, God does that very thing. God actually commands it. 
We are not commanded to feel it, but to do it, to choose to love. Love is a verb that consists of actions or a mode of living. And I'm going to read 1 Corinthians 13 from the paraphrase. Love is a feeling. No, it doesn't say that. It says love is patient and kind. Love is not jealous or boastful or proud or rude. It doesn't demand its own way. It is not irritable. And it keeps no record of being wronged. Love never gives up, never loses faith, is always hopeful, and endures through every circumstance. A godly husband is a man who chooses day after day to walk in love towards his bride. His bride, his bride of one year, his bride of five years, his bride of ten years, his bride of twenty years. If he does that, if he walks in love towards his bride, the feelings of love will likely follow as well. If he does not walk in love, he will not have those feelings either. At least not very consistently. Because one typically follows the other. And I think I gave this illustration already before. It's like a train. You want to make some change in your life. You don't have any love towards your spouse. Just take that as a scenario. Whatever you want to do. You don't, there's some, okay, this is a, this is the first day of the year. You want to set goals. There might be some goals that you should have that you do not feel like doing at all. Let's imagine for this case that it's, you should actually do loving things towards your spouse. But you have absolutely, she, she is the way she is. I have, I, I can't hardly stand her, you know, whatever, whatever the situation, whatever situation you want to put in there. But you know this is actually what God says. But this is how I feel. And they don't ever anywhere close to line up. Like a train, which is a long train with a hundred cars, if the engine, your feelings are the caboose and your will is the engine. And so you decide to go around this curve. Back there, it'll take a long time, but eventually the caboose catches up to the engine, at least the curve never catch it up to the engine, you know what I mean. Eventually, whatever choices we make, our feelings follow after. That is actually part of discipline. That is actually part of faith. That's actually part of obedience. In modern times, we have exalted the feelings of love, but we have not exalted the actions of love. Now, when everything is going well between you and your wife, and and things are going well, and she's responding to you well, and things are well, that's actually not your opportunity to show the love of Christ. But when your wife is failing you, when she is has offended you or hurt you or embarrassed you or betrayed you or neglected you, that is your opportunity to show the love of Christ.
to her at that time. That's the that's the point. <clears throat> Another thing about marriage is there is something different about a husband's love for his wife than is different. You know, biblical love is caring for others. It's it's even putting their needs ahead of yours. There's sacrifice in love. <clears throat> marriage is a little different in that marriage is a husband's stewardship. You have been given the stewardship of your wife. And she comes first in your life. So there's the whole world to love. But God has commanded you to love your wife. So she has a primary place. And so she gets the love first. That means you will at time need to turn someone else's, turn away some other care for some other people for the purpose of loving your wife. <clears throat> In the hierarchy, hierarchy, I can't say that word right, hierarchy of needs in the world, I am called to love my wife primarily. <clears throat> Out of the overflow of the home comes the ministry for others. So sometimes you will need to spend time with your wife instead of spending it with the needs, some other needs out there. That's part of the vow you made when you got married. So love is primarily or fundamentally actions and modes of being and only secondarily in emotion. Also, husbands, we are to nourish our wives, which means to provide for her physical needs. Um, I have, this is a little inconclusive, but they say that if you have a plant, you talk about a house plant, and you're caring for it, that if you talk to your plant, it grows better. The evidence in the scientific studies they've done, they're a little bit over the place. It's not quite consistent. But the theory is, one of the theories is that actually, um, I mean, they actually say it actually does happen. The th one of the theories is, is that when we breathe out, we breathe out carbon dioxide, which is what a plant needs. And so if the carbon dioxide content of the air is higher, it, it can grow better. So I don't know. But with the idea of nourishing, we are to edify and build up and give input on in our wives that cause them to grow and to prosper. So let's imagine you have this plant and you want this plant to grow and prosper. Well, you'll get a good soil. You'll have its fertilizer. You'll water it. You'll, you'll protect it from the elements. You'll make sure it has sunshine. You do all those things. And then you come and talk to it. And this plant is nourished. Can you think of any examples of what you could do with your wife? To pro she... she it is our responsibility, husband, to nourish our wives. It's what it says there in, uh, in Ephesians. 
No man hates his own body, but he nourishes and cherishes it, his own body. That's what we shall do to our wives. And I wonder if talking isn't one of those things, maybe. You think your wife would prosper well if you would talk to her and talk to her and talk to her. Especially if you're close. And I'm thinking more than just physical space. I'm thinking maybe a little deeper, a little lower. Maybe in the heart level. Close. You think your wife would prosper more? My wife would prosper more if we would connect, talk from our hearts. Then cherishing has to do with imparting warmth. It's like, like you're beside a fire and that fire is cherishing you. It's comforting. And if I've written down here, be a student of her and learn how to constantly and consistently and increasingly show her her preciousness. You think your wife would prosper more if she knows really knows that you are she is precious to you that you cherish her i you probably heard the story of the the seven cow wife how many have heard that story oh, that's pretty common okay where it is the way i remember it's been many years since i saw it but this somewhat plain and homely woman girl young woman in her father's house didn't have much prospects for a husband. And then this young man came, and, and this was a culture where uh, someone that was still not very desirable wouldn't be offered very much, but someone who was very desirable would be offered a huge amount of uh, dowry. In this case, it was cows is what they usually used. And uh, one or two cows was for a rest of regular, but you really wanted someone you would go up the line to. And this young man came to his father and offered her seven cows. And this woman knew she was cherished. She knew she was precious and she blossomed. That's the whole point. You think your wife would blossom if she knows how precious she is to you? Now, that's the ideal. That is an ideal, though. Nourish your wife. Cherish your wife. Make that an ideal. We won't do it perfectly, but we are called to nourish and to cherish. Now, there is one verse in Paul's letter to the Colossians for the husbands, and only one. I'll just read it. Husbands, love your wives and be not bitter against them. That's all we have in Colossians. Colossians 3.19. If you're going to use one word to tell them what to do, we would expect them to say, love your wives. So that, that, that we got that. But one word to tell them what not to do, he uses the word, do not be bitter. And a little bit of question, why, why, why would he use that word? Well, this word bitterness isn't quite in the traditional way we take it. If someone is bitter, they hold a grudge, 
Yeah, don't do that. Don't hold a grudge toward your wife. But that's not quite what the word means. The word comes from a root, which sort of means the idea of sharp or pungent or harsh. Don't be harsh with your wife. Love your wife. Don't be harsh. It seems to be the opposite of the word cherish. Cherish and harshness are opposites. And harshness is a sort of flavoring of sharpness or punchy that's unpleasant. Um, it includes your words, but includes your actions, and it includes your you know your hand motions, your body language, includes everything of you. This this atmosphere. And um, acrid is one of the descriptive words of this word, and it has a lot of cinnamon. So I'm going to use these cinnamons as I'm going to change this verse and use these cinnamons. Husbands, love your wife and don't be barbed, biting, cutting, sarcastic, scathing, smart aleck, smart mouth, tart, snarky, or harsh with her. All those are cinnamons of that word bitterness. Don't do that with your wife. You see, boot camp might have a place to whip up some rebel and get him into shape of some kind of form. You tell you know what I mean by boot camp. That's where you are you're put in a program and you are it's you are plump put through this program. That's not how you straighten out your wife. Uh, don't do that, please. So husbands, love your wives and never treat them harshly. Okay, now let's get back to Peter. Or we're going to get done today. Likewise, ye husbands, dwell with them according to knowledge. So, first of all, husbands, you should live with your wife. Make sure you have the same address. Okay, got that down. 30 years. But live with her according to knowledge. Live with her in an understanding way. It's amazing that two married people can live together and not really know each other. See, ignorance is dangerous in any area of life, but it's especially dangerous in marriage. And uh, I'm reading out of the, B, uh, the BE commentary, which is the one that, that alerted me to the, the first word, likewise. She say, the Christian husband needs to know. Now listen up, husbands. This sounds really unmasculine, but it's not. A Christian husband needs to know his wife's moods and feelings and needs and fears and hopes. He needs to listen with his heart and share meaningful communication with her. Dwell with your wife According 
to knowledge. Live with her, know her. And I'm thinking of those two things, just two things, her fears and her hopes. Just those two things. Do you know what your wife fears? Do you know what your wife fears? Do you know what your wife's hopes are? Besides you straightening up. Maybe you don't know that either. There must be in the home such a protective atmosphere of love and submission, love from the husband and submission, that the husband and wife can disagree at times and still be happy. Happy is sort of a relative term, could be maybe a better word. But here is another sentence I would like for you to take home. How you as a couple disagree with each other. How no, how you as a couple how you as a couple disagree. How you as a couple disagree says more about the health and maturity of your marriage and your character than if you would agree all the time. If you agree all the time, there's no test. But how you disagree actually shows what your what your health of and maturity of your marriage and your character is. But every woman has has habits, she has fears, she has tendencies, she has likes, she has dislikes. In marriage, she feels the need to be understood. And a husband demonstrates his understanding of her by living with consideration towards her in those things. <clears throat> we husbands, some of us, not all of us, some of us like to do the big thing for our wives, you know, big surprises or big gifts. Sometimes something big. Living with your wife in an understanding way is a big thing. <clears throat> that is a big thing. Okay, moving on here. What is meant by the wife, a woman being the weaker vessel? Well, women are different in many ways. They are more sensitive. They're more tuned into their emotions generally. At least they have them. But a vessel is talking about the body. Their body is more delicate than ours. Live with your woman in an understanding way as unto the weaker vessel. You need to be considerate of her body and her disposition as a woman. See, we are, she's more delicate. And I, I, I heard this, it's not, I heard this illustration one time. It's not a spiritual one and it's not even a scientific one, but it's an interesting illustration. Man is made out of the dust of the ground. He's refined, we're, all we are is refined dust. We're dirt. That's been refined in such a way, like if you take crude oil out of the ground, before it becomes useful, you need to refine it. And then you have grease and then you have motor oil and you have diesel fuel and you have gasoline and you have plastics and you have perfumes, I think, they make out of oil. All kinds of things when you take petroleum, crude oil, 
and you refine it. Well, we are refined men. God took, for to make Adam, he took dirt, dust, and he formed a man. The idea is you get about 60 pounds of dirt, and you add about 100 pounds of water, and then you have a man, an adult man, 160 pounds. But God didn't go to dirt to make a woman. He took this refined dirt that he had, and he took a part of it, and he refined the refined dirt. She's doubly refined. That's the illustration I like about a woman. She is more delicate. She's more fragile, but she's more beautiful. Her skin is smoother. Um, her skin is softer. Her voice is softer, more melodious. But her body is weaker. It can handle the heavy stresses or workload as well. A man of the same, a man and a woman of the same weight. A man has about 15% more muscle mass, especially upper body. I'm not going to describe where that 15% is in a woman. <laughs> that extra 15%. Women get cold quicker. If we want to know if it's warm enough, or the temperature of the room, we like that the women and what they're doing with their sweaters. That's how we know. <clears throat> they tend to get sick more often, is what I'm told. Now, a woman is not morally weaker. She's not spiritually weaker. She's not intellectually weaker. In fact, morally, sometimes I think women are more sensitive Honor her as the weaker vessel, husbands. She's a co-heir or a co-partner of the grace of Christ with you. And I think this co-partnership, I think what, what Peter might be saying, I'm not sure, I didn't do a whole lot of study in this one. In that era, women were lesser and men were, in other words, with women were... Um, A second-class citizen, I guess it's the best way to describe it. And that was common in most, if not all, primitive cultures, that a woman was not of the same class citizen as a man. Now, wherever the gospel has gone, the woman has been elevated to an equal status with a man, not in role, but in value, and in respect, and in honor and appreciation. It's not always been that way. It's not always is that way. But that is um, the ideal. And I want that to be here that way. <clears throat> now with the feminist movement and with the twisting and contortion of what God means of men and women, the woman is actually on top and the man is disdained as the oppressor. And... Um, He's steamed down and he has toxic masculinity. And when a man really acts like a man, he is, he is disdained. So that is the modern, that, that's not right either. But authority has been given to the man so that he can honor and protect and nourish and cherish his wife. 
She is not worth less. The husband should be the thermostat in the home, setting the emotional and spiritual temperature. That's the husband's role. The wife is often the thermometer in the home to let the husband know what the temperature is, and both are necessary. You need a thermostat, and you do need a thermometer. A husband. Who is sensitive to his wife's feelings will not only make her happy, but will also grow up himself and help his children live in a home that honors God. And then we come to the last part: that your prayers be not hindered. The title of this message is "Wifely Ministry." You have a ministry. This ministry—if you are a husband, you have a ministry—and young men, if you take a wife, this is a ministry you pick up. And this ministry is so important that God will not let us get away with it. You see what He says? He said, "If you don't do this ministry, if you fail in this ministry, your prayers, your very prayers, are going to be hindered." We will not get away with violating this ministry that we have from God. If your prayers are hindered, you're not going to get away from it. This is a ministry that God gives to us. Now you know why I think my prayer, my, my、uh, message, might not be as encouraging as it was to the ladies. This is, you know, really. We 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 gotta do it. <laughs> There is no choice, but it's the word of God. <clears throat> we may be great at work, we may be great in public, we may be great in ministry, but if you fail at home, in this area, you fail because it's your ministry, and. So it's a balance here. Just because a home is not prospering is not always the husband's fault. We have to bring balance in here. I, I'm, I'm talking to husband, but I want to recognize that there are homes that don't prosper, and it's not always the husband's fault. Just like the wife that has an unbelieving husband and she does her part, is no guarantee how that home is going to go. So well with a husband. It's it's two people, and you cannot control the other person in your home. <clears throat> and and you 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 should you you shall not control the other person in your home because that's what they do. They are responsible for it. So if the home is a failure, it may not all be your fault. But this part of your home. What God has called you to do—that is your part. And in that part, God says you must not fail it. If you fail that part, your prayers will be hindered.
Okay, I need to move on here. Just a few more things I want to say here in closing. I have to move a few things. I miss a few things here. I just want to say, yeah, I'll, I'll just finish with this. We have been told, when it comes to the ladies, we've been told to look to Sarah. Ladies, when you want to know how to act towards your husband, Sarah is lifted up as an example. She is lifted up as a wife in how she responded. Okay. Now, us as men, what, for example, do we have in Scripture of a husband? Can you think of any? I'm going to go down a number of names, and you think, okay, we have Abraham. Was he a good example of a godly husband? Well, hmm. What about Isaac? Uh, their marriage wasn't that good. What about Jacob? Uh, Moses? Uh, well, what about David? Hmm. Solomon? Huh. He had plenty. Huh? He had plenty. He had plenty. But the example of we as to follow as a husband, there's only one that I found. And it will depress us. Does anybody have any idea who was a good husband? Boaz. Hmm? Boaz. Boaz. <laughs> okay, yeah, there you go. Although that was off to the side there. Yeah, okay, thank you. Hosea. Huh? Hosea. 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 Joseph. Oh, okay. You don't have anything about his marriage, but he probably was a good one. Yeah. Yeah, he was fixed. Okay. Hosea actually is the one where you actually get a picture of their marriage. For he married a prostitute and she went back to being unfaithful and he continued to do his part and won her, brought her back. That is the picture of husbands, of faithfulness in a husband, that this is that the picture that God has called us to do in marriage. And I trust none of, I uh, know, none of our marriages are as bad as his. So we, ours should be easier than his. <clears throat> On January 20th, 1961, John F. Kennedy took the oath of office and gave his inaugural, inaugural address and the most memorial phrase was, and so my fellow Americans, ask not what my country can do for you, ask what can you do for my country. And so I'm going to finish with it this morning. And so my fellow Christians... My fellow husband Christians, ask not what can my wife do for me, but what can I do for my wife? We are the earthly reflection of Jesus. We're men of dust, but we're men of God. Victory is not feeling better. It is making right choices. May God bless you.